Welcome to the second season of SeaTech Voices, The Risk Perspective, the podcast that brings you expert insights to today's hot topics in healthcare cybersecurity, compliance, and privacy. Each episode of The Risk Perspective Season 2 features an inside listen into the conversations between SeaTech thought leaders, subject matter experts, and industry guest speakers who share their trusted risk expertise and perspectives. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. New episodes are released weekly, and a transcript of each episode can be found at Synergistic.com. And now for the show. Hello, everyone. This is Marty Arvin with Synergistic, and I'm here with my colleague, Mark Pasquale from HealthLink Advisors. We want to talk to you today about the information blocking rule and specifically some of the considerations and factors that providers want to think about under this rule. To give you a little information on myself, I am an executive advisor with Synergistic. I've been in healthcare for 31 plus years and most of that in the healthcare compliance arena, focusing on privacy information security and general compliance in healthcare. And I'm going to allow my colleague Mark to introduce himself and give a little bit of his background before we get started. Well, thank you, Marty. Um, as Marty mentioned, my name is Mark Pasquale. I'm a vice president with HealthLink Advisors, uh, where my responsibilities center primarily on IT governance and strategy. Um, I've been in the and I've been in IT my entire career, primarily focused on supporting healthcare delivery organizations. So our agenda for today is we want to talk through just some important things we think it's helpful to know about the information blocking rule. And then we want to talk about some key concerns and considerations that we think are going to be helpful to providers. And then we'll do a very quick wrap up. So Mark, you want to talk just briefly about the background? Um, sure. So just a brief history. The, the 21st Century Cures Act was signed into law in December 2016. Its, its primary purpose was to streamline the drug and device approval process so that the treatments could be brought to market faster. There's a couple of sections uh, in the 21st Century Cures Act which focused on interoperability and information blocking. Um, they're, they're both related to the exchange of patients' health information. So to support the act, both CMS and ONC issued regulations to provide guidance on this topic. Marty and I will be discussing really the CMS rule in part two of our podcast series. Today, we're going to be focusing on our discussion on the ONC rules, which provide both regulations and potential penalties for covered actors. So... We're going to touch on um, who's who's impacted, what information blocking is, key dates, and then what will be impacted as it's associated with providers. Right. So the ONC rule refers to actors. Well, who are the actors? And it's it's used throughout the the entire rule, both for the CMS and the ONC uh, rules. The actors refers to healthcare provider organizations, um, developers of certified health IT. So these are your these are your EMR vendors health information exchanges, and health information networks. Now, to really kind of align things, they've defined uh, health information exchanges and health information networks synonymously throughout the rule. So they're, when they, they're used interchangeably throughout the process. Now, when you, you talk about 
information blocking and what it is, this is almost the direct uh, definition out of the rule. Uh, the practice that um, is likely to interfere with the access exchange or use of electronic health information. And note here for providers who are used to say seeing protected health information, the electronic health information is a defined term in these regulations. So be aware that it's not an oversight on our part. That is actually the term used by the rule. And you can only avoid information blocking if either the sharing the information is something that would violate a law. In other words, you sh can't share it because you're required by law not to, or it's covered by one of the exceptions. And we'll talk a bit more about those very briefly as we go forward. Um, and, and the intent here is again for developers of certified health IT, those HIEs and HINs, uh, for the actors that know about it. So you're in violation of as one of these three actors if you knew or should know that the practice you're engaged in would be information blocking. And it's important to know that for providers, there's a different standard of intent. For the provider, it's if the provider knows that the practice will unreasonably or unlikely interfere. So just be aware of that, that there's a higher level, uh, or I guess a lower threshold for intent when you're talking about other actors, but for the healthcare provider, it, it's uh, whether the provider actually knows the pr practice will be unreasonable. And just to note, they define the term interfere with in the regs. So be cognizant of that as you think through what, what this applicability is. I might have skipped a slide, so I apologize. Yep, got some key dates here. Mark, do you want to talk a bit about the first couple? Sure. So the ONC rule was, the final rule was published on May 1st. And in the rule, it stated that the compliance date to really not be an information blocker uh, would be six months from that publishing, so November 2nd. Um, so the what's interesting is the enforcement time period has changed. Um, and Marty, could you kind of talk to us a little bit about um, what the enforcement date, what's really going on with that, why it's a bit unclear, and, and what, the, what the current specifications are? Sure, thanks, Mark. Um, so the technical enforcement date under the regulatory provisions is six months after the publication to be consistent with the compliance date. Um, however, a couple things have occurred. One is um, the ONC has said they will extend it. They will exercise enforcement discretion for three months after the enforcement date, which puts us to February of next year. But the other piece that is interesting is um, they will not actually begin enforcement until the final civil monetary penalty rule for these regulations has been put in place. And we do have a proposed rule that was published in April, but we don't yet have a final rule. So whether that ties back to the dates that have already been put out there, the date that ties to the exercise of enforcement discretion, which is the February date, or whether it'll be some other date that's actually going to be the enforcement date once that CMP rule is finalized is still a bit up in the air. And I think it's also important to remember that the civil monetary penalties are again only applicable to other actors. For the provider actor, this is unclear what type of enforcement activity will occur because again, the ONC has said that this will actually be tied to disincentives that will be published by CMS. 
And we haven't even gotten a proposed rule published for those disincentives. So it's really unclear what the enforcement actually is going to be against providers and when that enforcement will be initiated. So again, I mentioned earlier that the regulations use the term electronic health information, and this is defined in the regulations. Uh, and the definition is, uh, I think, a bit interesting because it is the electronic protected health information that is defined as part of the organization's designated record set. And so that EPHI and DRS are both terms that are defined in the HIPAA regulations. Uh, and that, that definition is ap applicable regardless of whether the information is maintained by a covered entity. So again, I think that's an important distinction for people to remember, and we'll talk a bit more about why that's important uh, in a few slides. But it explicitly does not include psychotherapy notes, and it also doesn't include information that's compiled in reasonable anticipation or use in any sort of civil, criminal, or, or administrative action or proceeding. So similar to what HIPAA says is not included in the designated or not included in the the right to access in the designated record set uh, you'll see that here so you know, thanks Marty you know I, I the way I look at the information that was just shared is that the the data set is really a progression of what has transpired since meaningful use was led and the the exchange of information really began uh, electronically in that fashion as a requirement. And the standards that are being set are a progression from that. Uh, and it, it will continue to, to progress over the next couple of years as more EPHI uh, standards will be released. One of the things that was kind of interesting was the complaint process. Uh, the, the OIG will be managing complaints. So this is for if there's a if there's an organization that feels that um, a health provider is is information blocking, they can report that organization uh, to the OIG. It's actually done through the uh, the health IT website. Um, you go to the website, you can uh, you can fill it out there. The complainant can stay anonymous if so desired, um, and uh, that's then the the OIG takes that information in and will will process that complaint. In order to be an information blocker, uh, it's defined in the rule by several criteria. You must meet all of these, uh, th this criteria to be considered an information data blocker. And Marty's gonna take us through those on the next slide. There are exceptions though. So if you, if you are following, if you are data blocking, there are exceptions that will allow you not to fulfill the request. It's important that you document those because the OIG, if there's a complaint against you, may actually ask you to produce that documentation as to why you feel that there's an exception. So again, Mark mentioned um, data blocking criteria. So you have to be an actor in the regs. The information has to involve the EPHI. It has to be a practice that's going to interfere with, prevent, or discourage that exchange. You have to have the requisite knowledge, which is why I went through the intent provision a moment ago. And again, the blocking is not required by law and it's not covered by the exceptions. Now we've got the exceptions on a table here. We're not going to go through the details of any of these exceptions uh, other than to tell you there are eight of 
of them. And there are five that are exceptions for not fulfilling the request at all. And then three that are tied to the, the manner and content uh, when you fulfill the request. So being aware of those is gonna be important. And, and that documentation comment Mark made a moment ago is gonna be important. So just some key concerns and considerations we wanted to touch on for providers. Um, Mark, you want to talk through about kind of what it means for providers? Sure. So the your, your system already has the capability of sending information. Uh, and again, these this regulation is for the transmission and basically in a read-only mode. There is not a requirement to update your system from another party at this point. Uh, this requirement is to exchange read-only information. In the in the meaningful use requirements, there were uh, there was there was a technology used. It was primarily called IHE. Your systems used it. It was to, to exchange CDAs, which were basically XML documents or um, basically Word documents that were that contained a set of data based on what uh, the meaningful use requirements were and what that particular EMR vendor developed. This is a change. There's a standard that's been developed for several years now called FIRE. And they're, they're now up to version 401. And it is, this is a web service that exchanges the data. So instead of passing XML documents around, your system now needs to process through a web service using the FIRE protocols. The major vendors have already enabled this capability within their systems. So some of the things that uh, we're suggesting you might consider, and one of those is um, set up a team. Uh, set up a team of people to be responsible for this if you haven't already. Remember, the compliance date is, is November 2nd, so there's not a lot of time left to, to get ready for this, even though the enforcement is likely and has been pushed out a bit and is a bit uncertain, you still have a compliance date under the regulations of November 2nd. And some possible members of that are folks we've listed here, the CIO, CISO, compliance, privacy. Um, you might identify other team members that you want to be part of this. This may be a whole new team you create to just focus on this. And this may be something that you tie to an existing committee, like your compliance committee or, or your uh, security committee or something of that nature. Or it may be a subcommittee or task force of, of an existing committee. So however you structure it, uh, it should be a team of people who are all going to be involved in what's going to be required of you to set up this process and infrastructure and policies and procedures. And that's a, another thing that you're going to need to do is review and revise current data access policies so that they align with the expectations of the, both the CMS and the uh, ONC, Office of National Coordinator rules. Uh, you, as Mark mentioned, are going to need to review your EMR capabilities and what potential limitations you could have today and how your vendors are responding to these requirements. So it's likely you've probably already started that coordination, but if not, you need to do so immediately. Um, you also want to stay current on any policy or enforcement changes that may be occurring. As we continue to evolve under COVID, we're not sure whether that three-month extension could be longer. Um, I don't anticipate they'll, they'll take it away, but it, I think there is some potential that it could be extended. 
And then you need to have that formalized process to respond to the data access request and evaluate each request against the exception criteria. Again, remember, if you don't meet an exception, you must share the data. So that formalization of the process should include the detailed documentation management and what the documentation expectations are so that if you do get accused of information blocking, but you felt like it was appropriate because you met an exception, you will have the good documentation to support that. Um, some things to also think about is know your data. This has been something that's not uncommon. We've heard a lot about it in the past few years, but it's going to be important to know your data, understand where the data resides in your organization, and also understand where that data might reside outside your organization. So let's talk about this a bit more. Uh, one of the things to think about, and it's been a topic I've talked about over the years since the HIPAA rule came into effect in 2003, the designated record set is not the same as the medical record or the record that might be in your electronic medical record. The designated record set is defined in HIPAA. And again, I'm not going to read that definition to you, but it's there for your reference to understand. It is the medical records, billing records, um, if you're a health plan, enrollment, claims, adjudication, etc. And the key factor I think here is used in whole or in part by the covered entity to make a decision about the individual. So that's where you need to make sure you're clear on what constitutes the designated record set for you. And so thinking through where that information might be that fits into that definition of a designated record set. Um, again, understanding where that EPHI resides in your organization. Uh, the rule requires that providers be able to share certain data elements and that's tied to that electronic health information definition for the first 24 months that fits under the USCDI data elements. And I, I put a reference here for you to find out where those data elements are so you're clear and you understand them. And then after 24 months or in May of 2022, the organization has to be able to share any PHI that is maintained in the designated record set, uh, electronic protected health information. So I, I think it's important that you understand what you're going to be obligated to share and make sure that your EMR has that capability and that your organization can share that data. So again, knowing where EPHI or EHI um, to, is stored is going to be an important factor to be able to be in full compliance with this regulatory requirement. And the other thing I think to think about is where might EPHI be stored out aside of your organization? So, for example, you may have vendors that are part of your, I'm sorry, release of information response. And if they're maintaining any EPHI that's considered part of the designated record set, then you're going to have to be able to acquire that data from them. Uh, how about transcription vendors? And again, making sure that if it fits under the definition of your designated record set, regardless of where it resides, it is e EHI under the information blocking regulations. So 
we just want to do a quick overview. This was very much intended to be a high-level discussion for you. And so let's kind of quickly overview what we've talked about. Mark, you want to talk a bit about this first slide? Sure. Um, thanks, Marty. So as Marty mentioned earlier, it's really important to uh, identify your team or your committee and assign someone within your organization to understand and stay up to date on the new rules. Uh, the, the ONC rule itself is hundreds of pages. As Marty mentioned earlier, some of the uh, enforcement dates from OIG are still in flux. So it's really important to have a, a, a committee that will overview these requirements as they continue to stay up to date on these requirements as it continues to evolve. So ask your committee to review existing policies and procedures regarding the exchange of health information. Um, Opt-in versus opt-out requirements are a good example of one item that should be reviewed. Your state might be an opt-in or an opt-out. Um, the committee may need to develop new organizational policies to support the rule requirements. Um, for example, how will your organization process requests for data access from third-party vendors? Um, and as Marty discussed, it's important to identify where your EPHI resides in your health system. So. Finally, make sure your committee understands what data blocking is and how exceptions may apply. Uh, you, you will need to, to document your rationale as we talked about earlier if you decide to leverage an exemption. Another thing that we just want to remind you of are those dates. Remember the compliance date is November 2nd of 2020 this year. That date has not changed. Some people get confused and think because the enforcement has changed, they don't have to technically be in compliance, but that is not the case. Remember the enforcement is not likely to happen and that even is questionable for clearly when that will occur for the health IT developers, HIEs and HINs, it is going to likely be November 1st of next year or sometime beyond that. For providers, remember, we still don't even have proposed regulations for the disincentives. And so until we get those regulations promulgated, it's not likely to have strong enforcement against providers. But that doesn't change your compliance requirements. And then remember for the data you have to be prepared to exchange until May of 2022, it's the US CDI data. And then after May of 2022, it's the electronic protected health information that composes your designated record set. So just being prepared and following through and ensuring you know where all of that EPHI is that constitutes your designated record set is going to be important. And this is just a quick reminder slide for your reference of what it means to be a data blocker and the criteria that has to be met uh, before you are triggered as a potential data blocker. And again, a review of the exceptions. And I know we went through this pretty quickly. It was intended to be very high level. Should you have any questions or want more information about this, feel free to reach out to either HealthLink Advisors or Synergistic, and we'd be happy to support you in that. Thank you, everyone. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen to us today, and we hope you found this helpful. Uh, thanks, Marty. Yes, thank you all very much for taking the time. Uh, to uh, to listen and to watch our webinar today. Uh, we wanted to provide this information to you in a succinct manner to help you make the, the decisions for your organization. 
And if you'd like more information on the information blocking or interoperability rules, you can visit Synergistic at Synergistic.com or you can email us at sales at Synergistic.com. Mark, how can they get more information from HealthLink Advisors? You can also visit us at HealthLinkAdvisors.com or email us at ProvenInsights at HealthLinkAdvisors.com for more information on the information blocking interoperability rules. And thank you to our listeners for listening. We'll catch you next week.